Show of hands, how many people here have heard the accounts of the golden calf from the Israelites? This is not a judgment thing, I just want to know. I have some idea. All right, how many people have heard this specific section where it's talking about the Israelites and the golden calf and God's reaction to... Sorry about that. And God's reaction to what happens to the golden calf. How many of you have heard that specific section? Maybe a little bit. Right, the events that happen in, in the middle of Exodus 32 there are kind of odd, and it's often the part that's left out of the Sunday school story. And I'll be the first to admit that it's hard. Because you have Moses, the leader of God's people, on this power trip. You've got him coming down the mountain and breaking the stone tablets of the law. You've got um, him smashing this idol to pieces, throwing it into the fire, sprinkling it over the water, and then making the Israelites drink it. You've got the second-in-command over, over Israel, uh, the man named Aaron. He's making all of these absurd excuses to, to Moses as to why all of this happened. And then at the very end, you have Moses telling the Levites to go and kill 3,000 of their fellow countrymen. And then saying, after they killed 3,000 of those fellow countrymen, that they were set apart uh, to the Lord for them. Right? That's odd. That is really odd. And it's, that truthfully... Much of the Old Testament is like that. If you just look at a small snippet of what is going on, it will always remain odd unless unless you understand the backdrop and the context of what is actually going on. And it's only when that happens do these events cease to become odd and start to become a little bit more clear. So we're going to do that this morning to start off. We're going to go through some of the backdrop and context. And, and I want you to know that in about two and a half paragraphs, I'm going to give you 400 years of Israelite history. So you all, are you ready for this? Right, so this whole thing, it all starts back in the book of Genesis. So Genesis, first book of the Bible, Exodus, the second book. Toward the very end of Genesis, you have this man named Jacob, who was one of the patriarchs of Israel. In fact, his name is synonymous with Israel. Jacob is a man who has 12 sons, but he favors the 12th son, his youngest son, a man named Joseph, more than the other 11 sons. And what do those 11 sons do, do you remember? They sell him into slavery, and Joseph ends up in Egypt. And by the hand of the grace of God, Joseph rises to power in Egypt, becoming the second in command only to who? Only to Pharaoh, right. And so during this time that, that Joseph is in charge of all of Egypt, there is a severe famine that happens, and Joseph ends up being reunited with his brothers who sold him into slavery and his father. And Pharaoh tells Joseph to bring his father, his brothers, his brothers' wives, their children, and bring everybody into Egypt. And Pharaoh gave them a piece of land so that they could be provided for during this famine. And the Israelites did very well in Egypt. But eventually Jacob and, his, and Joseph and his brothers, they all passed away and centuries went by. The Israelites became fruitful and increased in number and multiplied. They became really great. But the problem was the problem was that the Pharaoh who was now in charge centuries after Joseph was Joseph was in Egypt. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't know the he didn't know the relationship that he used to have with Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh saw these Israelites, this growing nation, as a so what did he do to them? He enslaved them with harsh labor. He saw them as such a big threat, actually, that do you remember the decree he gave? That all of the young Israelite boys who were born to Israelite mothers were to be thrown in the Nile and drowned. After the edict was given by Pharaoh, there is an Israelite woman who gives birth to a son named Moses. And she follows the Pharaoh's decree and throws him into the river, except does it a little bit differently. She places him in a basket, and he floats down the river. And again, by the grace and hand of God, who ends up taking care of this baby or finding this baby? Pharaoh's daughter. So Pharaoh's daughter adopts Moses, raises him in the very house of the man that said all of these young Israelite boys need to be killed. Now Moses, he, he grew up and eventually came to a place of prominence within Egypt, but through a series of unfortunate events, including the murder of one of the Egyptian uh, slave drivers, he ends up fleeing to a neighboring country called Midian. Everybody's still with me. Okay, everybody's still good. 
flees to a neighboring country called Midian, and he ends up marrying the daughter of a man named Jethro, a Midianite priest. So Moses stays in Midian a long time, gets to the age of 80, and one night as he's out tending his father-in-law's flock in Midian, God appears to him and calls him from the burning bush. How many people have heard the, the account of the burning bush? Okay, good. We're like at least taking, uh, taking steps to getting to the point of Exodus chapter 32. So do you remember what Moses tells, uh, or what God tells Moses? That he's going to go to Egypt, and he's going to stand before Pharaoh and tell them, let my people go. And the whole reason that God has him do this is because God, he's, because God says, I am the Lord your God, and I have heard these people's, my people's cry for mercy. And so after some convincing by God and God nixing all of Moses' excuses as to why he can't go and do this, Moses finally goes with his brother Aaron and stands before Pharaoh and tells him, let my people go. But Pharaoh doesn't listen the first nine times. So, so through a series of nine, or excuse me, ten plagues, and Moses going ten times to Pharaoh saying, let my people go, Pharaoh eventually listened. Thus began the Israelites' exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land. There's a whole lot that happens in between the exodus from Egypt and the Promised Land, isn't there? About three months into their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, the Israelites stop at a place called Mount Sinai, and it's there that God invites Moses up Mount Sinai to have a conversation with him. And really what God is doing with Moses up on that mountain is giving them three sets of different laws as to how they are to to live and to work and to function and to worship as God's set-apart people. This whole concept of the Israelites being set-apart as God's people is huge in understanding what is going on in Exodus chapter 32. The three kind of laws that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai were the civil law, which is how they were to govern themselves as God's set-apart people, the ceremonial law, which is how they were supposed to worship as God's set-apart people, and the moral law, the difference between right and wrong. These are the laws that God gave to Moses so that the Israelites could be their set-apart people. And Moses is up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and it's unfortunate, or I should say unfortunately, everything goes wrong during those 40 days that Moses is gone. The Israelites get a little bit skittish because they don't know if the guy who brought them out of Egypt was ever going to return. And so they go to the guy who's second in command, a man named Aaron, Moses' brother, and, he, and they tell Aaron, Come, make us some gods who will go out before us. Now, Aaron, Aaron should have known better, right? Aaron was there with Moses every time that he went and stood before Pharaoh. Aaron was there and saw the plagues and the destruction that got brought upon Egypt for disobeying God. Aaron was there when they crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground. Aaron was there as they began the journey to, to Mount Sinai and eventually to the Promised Land. But Aaron doesn't do what he should. Instead, Aaron gives into the request of the Israelites. So he takes all the gold that the Israelites can give him, and he throws it into a fire, and he forms this calf made out of gold. And he tells the Israelites, Come, Israel, here is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And then Aaron builds an altar. And then the Israelites set their hearts apart to the worship of this golden calf. And they sacrifice to this golden calf. They are dancing around this golden calf set their hearts apart to a fool's God made of gold. And obviously God is angry and upset about this. Because the very first thing that God tells Moses when he goes up Mount Sinai, you shall have no other gods. You shall not make any idols for yourself. And yet so quickly, three months after God brought them out of Egypt, what does Israel do? They make an idol. They worship around it. They dance around it. They 
sacrifice to it. They worship this fool's god made of gold. And this is what causes Moses as he comes down and with Joshua, he hears the singing and sees the dancing. This is what causes Moses to go into a fit. This is why he throws down those two tablets of the law that were engraved by the finger of God that had the, had the Ten Commandments on it. This is why Moses throws down, his, uh, throws down those two tablets of the law and smashes them to pieces because Israel had abandoned the God that brought them out of Egypt that was leading them to the promised land and had set their hearts apart to the worship of a fool's God made of gold. I don't admit, I'll be really honest, every time I read this account from Exodus 32, it reminds myself of all the backdrop and the background that goes on. I'm very quick to condemn Israel. I'm very quick. And maybe you are too, because this is a story that's familiar to you. Or maybe this morning, you're, this is the first time that you're hearing all of the background and, and everything that happens to God leading them to that place and, every, and how they end up so far astray from the God that they should be worshiping. And maybe you're asking yourself this question, how in all the world could they allow themselves to do God rescued them from Egypt. God set them apart to be his own. God said, you are going to be my people for a specific purpose, and yet they abandoned God, and they set their hearts and hearts to a fool's God made of gold. I'm very quick to ask those questions. I'm very quick to condemn Israel, and yet it takes just a cursory look at my life, and, and for you, if you're looking in the mirror, a cursory look at your life to figure out that we shouldn't be so quick to condemn them as we should be to condemn ourselves, because... All too often in our own lives, we find ourselves acting just like the Israelites, right? In fact, we are most often like the Israelites in that story. And I'll grant it, I'll grant you that we don't have a golden calf right here. At least I don't think so. No, there's no golden calf on the altar. There's no altar to a false god. We're not singing and dancing and worshiping around a false god. I will give you that. But if you convince yourself that you never have and never will have an idol, that you don't have an idol or a false god that you are worshiping right now, well, then you'd be lying to yourself. To get you to see what I mean, I'm going to ask you a number of questions here. And I don't want you to answer them out loud, but I want you to think deeply about them. I want you to really examine your hearts, and even if it takes writing something down in your service folder, that's great. I'll give you 30 seconds to, to answer these questions. Do you really love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? Or is your heart partially set apart to an idol? Is your entire life, your worship, your sacrifice, your service, is it entirely set apart for the one true God? Or is it partially set apart to a God that you've made? Take 30 seconds and think really deeply about those questions. And really examine your heart. You know, as Christians, we know exactly who God is, the one true God. We know exactly what God expects of us. We know exactly the lengths that God has gone to, to rescue us. And yet, have you ever asked yourself why it's so easy for us, like the Israelites, to slip into the sin of idolatry? Have you ever asked yourself why that happens to me, why that happens to you so often? Maybe for you, it's that you feel like you 
aren't feeling the presence of God in your life. And instead of searching for the deus absconditus, the, the hidden God, he was said you create a God that you can see with and touch, see with your own two eyes and touch. Maybe for you in your life, you are, you're prone to idolatry, you're prone to the worship of a false God because you're not getting the, the sense of satisfaction that you need spiritually or physically from the one true God or the, the sense of satisfaction that you think you should have. So instead, you chase after another person or another thing or a substance or a cause or whatever it might be to derive that sense of satisfaction, even if, even if that sense of satisfaction is temporary and fleeting. Or maybe for you, the reason that you're so prone to idolatry is, is because worshiping and following the one true God is just hard. Setting apart your entire life, your entire worship, your entire schedule for devotion and worship and sacrifice and service to the one true God is hard. And so instead of doing that, you set your heart apart to a God that you create that never tells you no, that never tells you you're wrong, and makes you feel good 100% of the time. Why is it that we're so prone to the worship of false gods? This statement is really simple. It's because we don't trust God. At least not fully. So instead what we do is we create a God that we think that we can trust. Which is exactly what the Israelites did in the foot of Mount Sinai. So what is your goal to have? What is the false God that you set your heart apart for? What is the false God that you worship? Maybe it's your freedom. You enjoy being free. You, you want the freedom to be able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want, and you don't want a God to tell you no. So, so you find a God who says, well, yes, I can. And so your freedom becomes the God that you bought onto. Maybe for you it's your work. You, you slave away for your boss day after day, night after night. You give in to this demanding boss, whatever he needs, even if that means sacrificing really important time with your family, your work, and most importantly, with you, for your family, and most importantly, the time that you need for your God. And so your work becomes the, the altar at which you bow down. There's so many idols that you can chase after. Is it your comfortable way of life, the life that God has given you? Because he has blessed you so abundantly, he has blessed you so spiritually, and instead of praising and worshiping the God who gives you all of these things, instead what you do is you worship the things that he's given you. I could spend page after page chasing down sex and other religions and causes and possessions and money as these titles that we flush out with. But maybe instead of this morning, what I'll do is I'll ask you this really pointed question. Do you realize how powerless and worthless the idols that we set apart our hearts for? Do you realize how powerless and worthless those idols actually I mean, that's what Moses had to show the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai. Do you remember what he did? When he comes down and he sees the singing and the dancing after he smashed the stone tablets of the law, he takes that golden calf and he throws it into the fire and melts it down. Then he grinds it all up into a fine powder and he throws it into water. And he makes the Israelites drink that water all to show them that the very thing that they were worshiping was powerless to do anything to save itself. It was just a hunk of gold. He had to show them that it was a fool's God made of gold. So how worthless and how, how powerless are the idols that you and I have a tendency to bow down to, you and I have a tendency to set apart our hearts for? Do any of them actually have the, the ability to permanently fix any of the problems in your life? Do any of them have the ability to give you any sort of real fulfillment or satisfaction beyond a temporary fleeting moment? Do any of these idols have the ability to fix any problems you have in the workplace or your marriage or your relationships or, or with your friends or even in church? Do these gods have any problems to do that? I guess the more important question that we need to ask are, are these gods that we set apart our hearts for in worship? 
Are they able to give us the forgiveness of sins? Are they able to assuage our guilt? Are they able to solidify eternity for us? And the answer always will be unequivocally no. So why? Why do we do it? When you and I are confronted with Israel and Aaron about our failure to keep that first commandment, about our inability to to, to say to God, I have had no other gods in my life. I have made no idols for myself. Do you know what we opted to? We act like Aaron. We make excuses. Do you remember what Aaron says when Moses confronts him? Let's, let's all look at that together, actually. This is in, uh, if you turn to page 7 in your service folder, this will start at Exodus 32, uh, verses 22 through 24. When Moses confronts Aaron, he said, Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. So what is it? What is his excuse number one? Blaming Israel. Right? Okay, and then he goes on. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt. Uh, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this cat. Right, we kind of laughed at the ridiculous of Aaron's excuse, right? Threw this gold into the fire, and poof, it's like magic. It's essentially what Aaron is doing. We have a tendency to laugh at that thing from Aaron, and yet the excuses that we make about the idols that we hold in our life, about setting apart our lives to these idols, they sound so much the same. When we're confronted with our inability to keep the first commandment, we, we say that it was an accident, that we didn't mean for it to happen, but it somehow just did, but then we go like Aaron. Or we try to say that we're forced into it, that we didn't really have much of a choice in it, or... Or like Aaron, again, we try to blame other people. It was my boss's fault that I have to work so much, or it's my kid's fault that I have to take them to so many things, and so I worship at the altar of my children, or it's my spouse, or whatever it might be, we try to blame somebody else. But I want you to understand this, that setting apart your heart for an idol, setting apart and devoting your life and worship, service and sacrifice to an idol, is not an accident, nor is it forced on you, nor is it somebody else's fault. It is a conscious, sin-driven decision. It is a choice that you have to make. And none of the excuses that we try to make before the holy, perfect God actually hold any weight. Because God says in that first commandment that he engraved with his own finger on that stone tablet, he says, you shall have no other gods. And do you know how serious God is about this? Look at what he did to the Israelites. He has Moses go to the center of the camp and call out, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And the Levites rally to his cry, and Moses sends out the Levites with swords to the Israelite camp, and they kill 3,000 people. And after that, after that, Moses tells those Levites, you were set apart for the Lord today. When I look in the mirror, and I see the idolatrous man standing back, staring back at me, when you look in the mirror, you see the idols that you have worshipped. No matter how big or insignificant you think they may be, realize that I deserve the same thing. Because God says the wages of sin is death. And anytime you set apart your heart to, to the worship and the devotion of any other God besides the one true God, is idolatry, and idolatry is a sin. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? You know, when you look at what God did to the Israelites, 
about the killing of those 3,000 Israelites because of their idolatry. That may seem like that was the act of a, a petty, angry, vengeful God, doesn't it? That's what I first read it when I came across it years ago. This was just God trying to get even. I want you to think about it like this. The more I, I came to understand how God dealt with Israel, the more I learned that God never dealt with Israel on an individual case-by-case, person-by-person basis. When God dealt with Israel, he dealt with them as a community. He dealt with them as a whole, both blessing and punishment. So this act of God, the killing of those 3,000 Israelites, that's not the act of a petty, vengeful God. Because really, when you look at the way in which God has dealt with Israel throughout the whole of Old Testament history, that what God should have done, what God could have done, was destroy all of Israel for their idolatry, and yet he didn't. Sure, 3,000 died because of their sin that day. But that act of God was an act of grace. That was an act of love. That was the act of a God who remembered the covenant that he made with, with Israel's forefather Abraham covenant that said all nations will be blessed through you. God did not want to destroy the nation that he set apart for himself for the singular purpose of bringing about the Savior of the world, bringing about the Messiah of the world. God did not want to destroy all of Israel because they were going to be the ones through whom Jesus Christ was born into this world. Jesus Christ who was set apart from eternity to join humanity and walk alongside them and live perfectly in their place. Jesus Christ who was set apart from before the world began to, to fulfill every single law that you and I fail to keep day after day, including our failure to keep the first commandments. Jesus, who was set apart before the earth's foundations were laid, to be the one to die for our sins. Jesus was set apart for the explicit purpose of winning for us a forgiveness of sins and solidifying for us, for each and every one of us, an eternity with God forever. God set apart his Son to be your Savior, he set apart his son to rescue you from your sins so that in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God could set you apart to be fully and completely devoted to him. And do you know how it is that God sets each and every one of you apart? We sang about it in our first hymn this morning. In baptism. I want to read for you, I want to read for you one of the lines from that opening hymn this morning from stanza four because the way in which the, Paul Gerhardt, who's the Lutheran theologian who wrote this, he beautifully describes in stanza four how it is that God sets you apart from baptism. You can find this on, on pages three and four. Stanza four, Gerhardt writes, In baptism we now put on Christ. Our shame is fully covered with all that he once sacrificed and freely for us suffered. For here the flood of his own blood now makes us holy, right, and good before our Heavenly Father. But here blood of his own blood now makes us holy, right, and good before our heavenly God. In your baptism, your God, he washes away your sins, he places his name on you, he makes you his own, he makes you the promise that he's going to love you and care for you and forgive you for all of your sins. In your baptism, your God has set you apart. He has set you apart from your sins. He has set you apart from your former way of life. He has set you apart from the death that your sins deserve. And he has set you apart for himself. He has set you apart to live a new life. A life that is totally set apart for him. A life that is devoted to worshiping him. A life that is devoted to serving him willingly for everything that he has done for you. This is the kind of life that your God wants you to live. Not a life that's filled with idolatry, but a life. A life that is totally, fully, completely set apart for him alone. Now, all of us here, 
all of us here, I think, on some level recognize that even after our baptisms, there is a sinful nature that still lives inside of you, a sinful nature that is so prone to idolatry, it, it almost can make us sick. And I want you to know that that struggle that you have with your sinful nature in the new man that God has created in your heart through the waters of baptism, that is a struggle that each and every Christian has. And each and every Christian, whether they admit it or not, struggles with the sin of idolatry, big or small. And so when that happens, recognize this, that you have a God who has set you apart, and you have a God that you can run to, and it is by and through and for his grace that God enables you to live the life that he has called you to live, to live the life that is totally and completely 100% set apart for him. So what does that life look like? What does that look like on an daily basis? Jesus, he actually outlines it in our gospel for this morning. The Apostle John, he outlines it in our second reading for this morning. A life that is set apart for God is a life that loves God more than anything else in this world. It is a life that loves God more than father and mother. It is a life that loves God more than husband or wife. A life that is lived that loves God more than sons or daughters that they have blessed you that way. It's a life that loves God even more than life itself. Living a life that's totally set apart from God doesn't mean that you can't love the blessings that He's given you. Because father, mother, son, daughter, possessions, the ways He's blessed you, your spouses, those are all blessings from God that God wants you to love and wants you to cherish. But the moment, from the moment through the water and the word of baptism that God sets you apart to be His own, He reprioritizes the way in which you look at love. And now, your love sees Him as the number one priority in your life. Living a life like this, it's going to cause some struggle. It's going to be some sacrifice. You're going to have to sacrifice time and energy and talents and, and efforts and possessions and even relationships like Jesus talks about in our gospel for this morning. And I want you to remember this. That everything that you and I have the potential to love, everything that you and I do love in this life, it will pass away. John says that, that the earth and all its desires will pass away, but the one who does the will of God will live forever. Because in the grand scheme of things, eternity with God will last forever, and these things on earth, they will pass away. So living a life that is fully and completely and totally devoted to God, it's, it's a life that's destined for eternity. God grant each and every one of you the faith and the strength and the ability to live that kind of life. A set apart for God kind of life. A life that is totally devoted to Him. A life that worships Him alone as the one true God. Life that loves God more than anything else in this world.